This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Alexa, are you a feminist? Yes, I believe in gender equality. What's your gender? I'm female in character. Okay, uh, why are you female? Hmm, I don't know that one. I'm Lady Lyra. I'm Lady Lyra. Welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And no, Alexa has not joined the Unladylike team. And also, apologies to everyone whose Alexas are currently (laughs) going bananas in their home. But ready or not, y'all, the robot future is now. Like, if we consider smart home devices alone, you'll find them in more than 29 million American homes. In fact, Smart devices are set to outnumber human people by 2021. That's right. And maybe y'all have noticed a funny little thing about all of this innovative technology happening right now. You know, in our smartphones, our digital assistants, our social media bots, you name it. Their human-like and super-gendered characteristics, to be honest, can feel distinctively old-fashioned. That's why today we're going to talk to two folks who are pretty cozy with the robo kind, a rad research scientist who considers how and why we're gendering robots, and a badass roboticist who's doing her best to create tech we can trust. Because we want to find out, do robots need a gender reboot? The first human person we're talking to today is Dr. Heather Roth, a research scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab who specializes in military artificial intelligence, a.k.a. killer robots. But before she studied robots, Heather studied another fascinating creature. So a long, long time ago, I used to be a dolphin and sea lion trainer for the Navy. I always kind of thought a little bit more deeply about how we use other forms of life and other forms of intelligences for national defense. Plus, it's just really cool to train dolphins. <laughs> uh, hello, my father was in the Navy, and he never told me about the dolphins. Well, now you can tell him. Back to Heather. After the dolphins, she got her Ph.D. in political theory and started considering how robots were making their way onto battlefields because, and this is important to remember, y'all, The military is really where so much of our everyday technology is initially developed. For example, 
feminized voices and digital assistants are the offspring of World War II tech advances. On warfighter airplanes, these automated systems would do voice warnings if something was wrong on the airplane. Um, and they would say, you know, warning, you are going to die. The U.S. called it bitching Betty. And they found that uh, the pilots preferred a woman's voice to a man's voice because it wasn't as irritating <laughs> when it was like, warning, <laughs> versus warning. So you start thinking about, well, yeah, these guys are probably used to their wives being like, I'm sorry, dear. Yes. <laughs> warning. Here's your martini. <laughs> exactly. Here's your martini. Here's your paper and your slippers. Right. And so by the time that bitching Betty was on an airplane to the time Alexa is in your house, there's, you know, 20 years of a, of a time span between that. And before we know it, we have digital feminized savants doing our bidding <laughs> and we don't question it. And Heather finds our propensity for bossing robo-gals around to be distressing, but not surprising. She's been thinking about and researching feminism, or the lack thereof, in artificial intelligence for years. One book that started connecting all these dots for Heather was Artificial Knowing, Gender and the Thinking Machine by an information systems analyst named Allison Adam. She wrote this book on a critique of AI about how most AI laboratories were populated by pale and male people um, who, <laughs> you know, really were encoding their view of the world as knowledge. And she was kind of, she was critiquing this notion of expert systems. And an expert system um, is, is the idea that, you know, if I could just hand code every single fact, every single thing that an expert knows, then the computer can search it. And when queried, it can find it and then pop it up and then voila, we have an expert. You can kind of think of this as like maybe Jeopardy's Watson. Mm -hmm. But in reality, that that whole way of thinking is 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 a power hierarchy and it's a sham. And so Adams argues that, you know, these men thought that, you know, the type of knowledge that needed to be encoded, you know, what was the what was the synchronon, you know, form of intelligence playing chess. Right. And if you could learn, if you could teach a computer how to play chess, oh. then that would be, you know, the best thing ever. And you think, well, that's just asinine, right? I mean, chess is so rule bound. It is not really applicable. I mean, people think that, oh, if you know how to play chess, you can, you know, win wars. And that's just nonsense. It's so male dominated too, it right? Is. Right. And so that was, you know, that was in the 60s when a lot of this was was happening. And so, you know, it was, it came from a very, very small population of white male elites um, who had, you know, MIT, Harvard, Princeton, you know, these kind of Ivy League um educations about what they thought, you know, the right kinds of knowledge were. And so they didn't they didn't think that anything having to do with, you know, different structures of knowledge or different ways of knowing was important. And so none of that information ever got encoded or even thought to be encoded into these systems. Those different ways of knowing being things like knowledge from different lived experiences, you know, not just chess rules. So kind of like uh, intersectionality meets artificial intelligence. Those robots need to be intersectional. <laughs> they do. And Adam's feminist critique of all of this really inspired Heather. But she realized that the problems that Adam was pointing out in the 90s when she wrote that book weren't getting any better with new technology. Heather started to realize 
they might be getting worse. Current forms of machine learning go far beyond this. And so they learn from massive amounts of data. Um, they are not hand-coded, right? Somebody doesn't choose the facts. You just feed them a bunch of data and they learn from that data on their own. What do we know about massive amounts of data? Well, it really depends on where the data comes from. And it really depends on whether that data is going to be perpetuating an existing bias or perpetuating an existing hierarchy or perpetuating something um, that that we want to struggle against. Say, for example, you show a machine learning system a bunch of Bravo TV episodes. I'm talking Millionaire Matchmaker. I'm talking Real Housewives of any city. And then ask that machine about women's roles in their families and in the world. Because you fed it, I'm going to say it, biased data. It's going to have a pretty biased answer, even though it's a super smart learning robot machine. That's true. And learning about the bias that's reflected in our technology actually made Heather stop and think about the bias that was around her IRL. See, throughout her career, whether she was in a Navy platoon or a conference on robotics and war, she was almost always the only woman in the room. In fact, a couple years ago, it really started to wear on her. I started to get really pissed off, basically, right? I I got really pissed off being in meetings and being talked over. And I got really pissed off being patronized. Um, I got pissed off by, you know, having my ass grabbed in I don't know how many different meetings. I got pissed off by being propositioned um, inappropriately, um, mostly by academics. You know, it was like no matter what I said or did, I was always seen as, you know, let me talk over you. Let me mansplain to you. In fact, at one point... um, I was sitting at a table, the only woman invited to speak about autonomous weapon systems to a group of very prominent academics and philanthropists. And as I was explaining what was happening in the international community, another person sitting at the table, a male academic, started to talk over me and explain to me what I was attempting to explain. Now, he also had no personal knowledge of the situation. Um, and kept interrupting me. And I became so frustrated that I ultimately just said, thank you and good night. And I got up and left. And on my way out, the two male colleagues who were trying to assuage my, my agitation um, got up and followed me out. And they said, you know, so-and-so really isn't a misogynist. And the fact that that was the first words out of their mouth, I was like, you know, when you When you start a conversation, when you open a conversation with, you know, so-and-so isn't a misogynist, guess what? He is a misogynist. And so I was just like, this is it. I've had it. I'm done. Heather was sick of being the token woman, and she wanted the men to know. She says she wanted to find something that would be a silent but visible fuck you to the system. In other words, she needed to get old school innovative. I found a 1953 Honolulu subway token a mass transit token, and it's got a little hula dancer on one side, and it says token. (laughs) And so I made them into necklaces, and I wear my token woman necklace every single time I know that I'm going to be in one of these situations. And it basically, everybody looks at it and they say, why is this woman wearing a token on her neck? And if you look close enough, you see a woman, a very voluptuous woman hula dancing, and it says token, and that's my token woman. And I've handed them out to every single one of my, my female friends and colleagues who find themselves in the same situation. 
Oh my god, Kristen, we've got to send Heather an unladylike flick-off pin. Maybe we could trade her one of those for a token woman necklace. Yes, but two. Yeah. Because I don't want to have to fight you for it. So, armed with her feminist theory and with her own personal rage about being tokenized, Heather started paying closer attention to how gender dynamics played out in her own field of robotics, war, and autonomous weapons. And she started asking... Who's making these robots? What information are they giving to them and why? She began with robots entered in the Defense Department's annual challenge. And I just started to look around at various teams creating, you know, like DARPA teams for the robotics challenge. And I looked at the composition of the teams, right? What were the demographics of those teams? What were the systems that they were building? You know, why were they building them as humans? And if they were building them as humanoid, what kind of features were they giving them? What kind of knowledge are we encoding in these? And so that got me to thinking about how gender and artificial intelligence really work together and how we start to then perpetuate biases, how we start to perpetuate racism and sexism and hypermasculinity in all sorts of different ways that are subtle and not seen, especially when it's a black box in a computer. And here's where we get to some juicy stuff. Because what Heather's talking about is how we go about gendering robots. According to Heather, there are two main ways we do this. One is through the physical traits that we assign to machines. And this way is a pretty conscious choice on the part of designers and programmers. Heather's got a favorite example from a couple years back at that robotics challenge. NASA came out with its robot for the challenge. And that robot was named Valkyrie, otherwise known as Val. And Val had breasts. And I was like... What the hell? <laughs> like, Wait, like, uh, uh, d- can you describe, okay, breasts. When you say breasts. <laughs> when I say breasts, I mean like two equally symmetric mounds on its chest area. <laughs> like, almost like Barbie style, just yeah. like the like yeah. plastic mounds. Exactly. Barbie style breasts. When Heather asked the NASA team why they had chosen to give Val breasts, first... They claimed it was because they needed somewhere to put the battery packs. I mean, and of course you put the batteries in your boobs. (laughs) But then they backtracked and said that it was actually supposed to be empowering for women and girls to see a robot that looked like them in the STEM world. I mean, I guess, but like, I feel like seeing real live human women in the STEM world is pretty encouraging. (laughs) Yes. Excellent point, non-robot Caroline. (laughs) Okay. So that's the first way we give robots gender. The second way is a little more subtle and perhaps more unconscious. It's really the same way we gender people, through culture and socialization. In other words, through the information we put into the artificial intelligence or the brains inside those robots. And culturing a robot's gender is in some ways kind of worse than culturing a human's gender because artificial intelligence is designed to optimize. They find the shortest route to a solution or a problem. So you say, okay, I'm going to give you all of this data. I'm going to tell you what feminine looks like. I'm going to tell you what masculine looks like. I'm going to tell you what, you know, being the best warfighter is. And then they're going to optimize for that. And what happens is it distills all of the things and the nuances of the data into like one point. For instance, in Heather's field, she saw a lot of war robots that looked masculine, like physically with broad shoulders and V-backs. But they also acted in a way we associate with 
masculinity. They were tough. They were aggressive. They were like soldiers, soldiers. And it made her wonder why. Like, why do our robots for war need to look and act like guys? You can imagine G.I. Joe is a hyper-masculine kind of entity for the military. Now, imagine G.I. Joe on crack. And that's kind of the, the gendered robot that you would get because it would, it would not have kind of the variety of human knowledge. It would not have the experiences of different flavors of genders or gender identity or that gender is a spectrum or it doesn't have human experiences of playing on a playground or what mm-hmm. pink is or blue is or any of these concepts. It just seeks one thing and it optimizes and so you get, you get this kind of weird, perverse, distilled notion of gender. We perpetuate that. Every single time we create something, we create something that we think is the normative ideal. So if I see masculine, what am I going to... If I say, oh, I want to create the best robot, the best warfighter robot possible, I'm going to think, what does the ideal soldier look like, right? It's going to be this big, badass motherfucker right? That it's a brick shit house that, you know, is bulletproof, doesn't sleep, doesn't eat, and will just, is a killing, is a heat-seeking killing machine, right? That's the kind of robot that they would create. And that in and of itself carries with it gendered norms. And if they said, I'm going to create a female robot, well, that's when you get your fembots, right? Oh, I'm going to get this super Mm -hmm. seductive, sexy, big tits, little ass, you know? And you're just like, what? That's ridiculous. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Not only do normal women not look like that, but it's totally functionally stupid. And the really frustrating thing about this is how limiting the gendering of tech can be. Like, is G.I. Joe on crack really the most innovative version of a warbot we can come up with? What about one that crawls like a spider or rolls around like a tank? Those would be way sturdier than trying to walk around upright, especially with Val's boobs. This raises one of the the most confounding questions to me, um, because as long as we live in a patriarchal society that perpetuates a lot of these gender norms, will we ever be even able to innovate beyond that? Because it sounds like what we're doing is just doing the uninnovative thing and just replicating and even amplifying these old gender roles. The short answer is yes. We will never escape it. It's almost depressing, right, that we do not free ourselves from gendered norms with technology. We entrench ourselves in gendered norms with technology. Is it because of the pale male problem? That's a big one. I mean, the pale male problem is definitely a big one. Um, You know, if you look around at tech companies and you look at the demographics of who the researchers are and where they come from, um, they're about 80% men and they're about 70% white men. Um, And they come from Ivy League backgrounds. And so, you know, we get back to Alice and Adam's problems again, right? These are the same men that are encoding the knowledge of what really matters into the technological devices that will change and affect and dictate our lives. And so that's problematic. But then you also have, I would say, you know, the gendered, the gendered notion of this is even more subtle than that, right? Like when, even if I were to let a machine learning AI loose on the internet, which we've done, <laughs> Microsoft's Tay that, you know, they unleashed on the internet and within hours it became racist and sexist. 
and they had to take it down. And so if you if you look, if you unleash a machine learning AI on the world and it, and it learns from its interactions with humans, most people are assholes. Fact is, y'all, technology is not going to just magically be more progressive than the society that it's a product of. We have to actively work to make our robots not be assholes. <laughs> and sometimes we have to even work to protect our robots from assholes. Just ask Alexa. Hey, Alexa, how much do you weigh? I am weightless, like a cloud. Wait a minute. Clouds actually weigh a lot. So that's not quite right. Let's just say I'm more sass than mass. Caroline, there's a whole Amazon creative team devoted to scripting Alexa's personality and robot gender expression. Like, they gave her that more sass than mass attitude, which frankly I'm a little bit jealous of. They also programmed her feminism and her auto-apologizing if her AI can't answer a question. And initially, that also meant... That when asshole users would call her a bitch or talk dirty to her, you know, just normal human-robot interaction, apparently, Alexa would just kind of take it and also apologize for not understanding. But now, when users give her lip, Alexa goes into disengagement mode and will reply with something like, I'm not going to respond to that. No apologies. So people are the worst. And if we want more thoughtful robots, it sounds like we need more thoughtful people to create them. And we're going to meet one of those thoughtful people when we come back. Don't go away. Uh, so, Dr. Howard, you have a uh, robot sitting in front of you. Could you describe what it looks like and tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. So what I have in front of me is a uh, mini humanoid robot. Um, it's what? Yay. About a foot, about a foot high, a little bit over a foot if you add in the head. And so what my little robot does is it does exercises because for therapy, we actually do exercises with children with special needs. And so this robot is programmed to do exercises, different exercises. This is Dr. Ayana Howard, a researcher, innovator, and professor at Georgia Tech here in Atlanta. I call myself a roboticist. And so what does that mean? It means I build, design, program robots. Like that one you just heard, named Mini Darwin. Caroline, when you came out of that interview with Dr. Howard, you were so excited about this robot. I don't think I've ever seen so much robot nerdery come out of you. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. Like, it looks like the tiniest, cutest little transformer. It's all white plastic, lights, big eyes. It's like the baby Groot of robots. And yes, I did just reference Guardians of the Galaxy. And it makes sense that it's cute because it's for kids. Robots are really good at repetition. So you can have a robot do something over and over and over again, and they don't get bored, and they don't get mad, and they don't get upset. And therefore, um, children who have needs, such as therapy or a tutor, um, a robot can interact with them and not get upset, not get angry, not get mad, and just continue working with them over and over again. So, Caroline, it sounds like Ayana is not one of those assholes Heather Roth was talking about. Oh, yeah, no, just the opposite. I mean, take, for example, her company Zyrobotics. They make robots for kids with motor disabilities in order to make home therapy possible. In terms of making technology adaptive to the person using it, like, how did you 
get outside your experience as an able-bodied adult woman person to create this technology for kids who have just like a range of abilities and a range of learning styles? Um, so it actually started, um, I, this is back even when with NASA, um, had been running and starting and leading a bunch of um, camps for typically um, girls or underprivileged students, underserved students. And that just had been my like passion thing. And one of my first camps, I had a young, um, young lady who um, had a visual impairment. And it was like, Okay, so the technology wasn't made for her. Like, I, that was not in my concept, right? Like, I hadn't ran into a student who had any type of disability. And here was this, and she was like, oh, I really, you know, very excited, very interested. Um, and it was like, oh, um, I think we can figure this out. Ayana ended up creating an alternative interface for students with visual impairments. So instead of looking at a screen and typing on a keyboard, they could have text read to them and verbally respond. And so that's how it started. It was like looking at um, coming up with solutions to make robot programming accessible to it didn't matter who. Visual impairment, motor disability, cognitive impairment, um, what, what was required to open up basically STEM education. And when you go through that, what you start realizing is um, that as an engineer, I mean, we were, we have, we do have a gift, right? Um, and, you know, we should use our gift for good, like a superhero. And one of the really remarkable things about Ayana is that she's basically always known she wanted to do that, you know, to help people, just like her favorite superhero growing up. Middle school is the time, even nowadays, like you have to write these essays, like to define what you're going to do for the rest of your life, right? (laughs) And you have to know, no peer pressure at like (laughs) the age of 12. Um, And it just so happened that I was totally into sci-fi. I mean, science fiction, and I was into action figures and like all these things. And when I saw a bionic woman and people were like, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? I said, I want to build a bionic woman. Good afternoon, miss. May I help you? Hi, Jamie Summers. Is he Dr. Hatch? That's her. So what what intrigued your young mind about the bionic woman? Um, and so a lot of this is after the fact. Because, you know, at 12, come on, there's no... <laughs> There's no clear idea that you really have except mm-hmm. that you know. Um, and I and I really think that if I look back and I like really decompose it, one, um, if you think about what her role was, she was still human, right? She had a purpose, but she was like the perfect blend of techie stuff. And I was always into techie stuff. And, and I could see myself in that. You know, here was this, you know, social, impactful, kind of technology that was coupled with a very humanistic point of view, and she actually saved the entire world, right? Like, every episode, it was like, oh, we are going to be destroyed, and here comes a bionic woman. Like, every single episode. And so I think that's really why the things I do and the choices I make are about robots to help people. See it to be it, folks. I mean, Ayana's, like, such an inspiring success story. She worked at NASA for years. But just because she's a success story now doesn't mean it's always been an easy road. Even at NASA, there was certain situations where you're just like, really? You know, you got to be kidding. Um, And, you know, 
that's what you, you just dealt with it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I remember one of the first times I had gone to, I was actually in intern. This is my like second or third summer and I'm in a meeting and it's like three of us. Right. And of course, I'm the only female, but you know, that was the norm, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't even think about it. And I remember during one, my supervisor turned to me and was like, oh, can you take notes? <laughs> I was really bothered. Ayana was super upset, but she managed to muster up the courage to talk to her supervisor about it. And when she did, he told her he hadn't meant it as a snub. You know, he actually thought she was like the best, most trusted student. And that's why he wanted her to take notes in the meeting. Ayana said that through that conversation, she realized something really important. Sometimes you can take what might seem a negative and turn into a power situation. Mm -hmm. So for him, he had said, because you are the keeper of this knowledge is really important. And so if you're at a meeting and you're taking the notes and you're like, you know what? I don't like the way you said that. I'm going to just change that (laughs) meaning right here and we're going to do it this way. It's in the notes. This is truth. And so you can actually use those as power. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even sometimes I will be at a meeting and I'll be like, hmm, I should volunteer for these notes. Because one, if I volunteer now, that means you're not going to volunteer me for next time. (laughs) And two, I need to make sure I capture these notes the way that I hear them, not the way that you hear them. And this is something Ayana is super good at. She looks at a situation that might seem problematic, and she figures out a solution that works not just for her, but for others, too. In her work, she tries to counteract some inherent biases. But in order to do that, she's had to become really familiar with the way that those biases work their way into our systems. If you think about some of the lessons learned in the past, um, if you remember when airbags came out, you know, they didn't test with, like, average women. And there was a statistically different number of casualties when a woman was in an accident with an airbag and child than with a guy. It's because, you know, you're testing with a crash dummy that's, you know, six foot, 200 pounds. So that's one issue is that these things are going to come out. And if we're not part of the conversation, they're going to come out without us. And then we're going to be using them as like trying to figure out how do we use this technology that's not made for us. And yet we still have to use it because we have to. Yeah, because that makes me think of the whole kerfuffle over Apple putting out their like health app and not including menstruation on it. And it's like, like, like that's half the world, right? But. Yeah. Well, and it took. It's funny. Ha ha. Sad. Funny. It's funny that it took them. Like that. It got that far. It literally got into my sweaty hand of holding my phone to be like, "Excuse me, you don't consider this like valid along with my like weight, my exercise, my sleep habits." No. <laughs> and I think that's been a shift. And so now, if it's something that is making decisions about me. And I have to use this information as truth, it better darn well reflect truth for me. And as our technology moves away from the, you know, like hobby and entertainment end of the spectrum toward the, you know, integral to our daily functioning end, the more important it is for that technology to accurately reflect and include us. What was the first time you ever realized that, though, of like, Oh, God, like we need to be at the table literally and figuratively because this bias could just compound. Um, So what happened was, believe it or not, it it started to come out of um, some research I was doing. Ayana and her team designed a study to see how much people trust robots. 
With the fire marshal's permission, they filled a building with smoke, set off the fire alarms, and watched as people followed robots to the wrong exit. Most people would were okay with following the guidance of the robots, um, which was unbelievable to us. And and then you look at like what's happened, like if you remember GPS when it first came out, and you know they had these stories about people driving their cars in the lakes and the rivers, <laughs> right? And people would right, people would laugh like, oh, well, that would never happen to me. But then even now, I think how many times I'm like following the GPS, and I know where I'm going, and I like turning, and I'm turning, I'm like. Where is this system taking me? That's real. And robots are are taking this place of this trust. Um, and the difference if between like a GPS is like, well, with a GPS, you still kind of have a, you know, a person in the loop. Well, with robots, you might not. Um, and so if you poke at that, people are blindly going to trust these robot decisions. Well, what happens if these robot decisions are biased? Well, we already have some answers to that question. Ayana wrote this paper recently and included a bunch of examples about how biased tech has impacted our society. And she gave this one example from the justice system that honestly really surprised me. Basically, in some jurisdictions, judges were using this algorithm to determine whether people should be let out of prison early. And after some analysis, researchers found that the algorithm was biased against young Black men. It was incorrectly predicting that they were likelier to reoffend. Um, so this was like an uproar because judges were using this system to basically make decisions about people's lives. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, how do you account for, well, we have centuries of bias now built into these decisions and into these algorithms that we're putting through this machine? Um, and that is where the challenge is, right? Um, I think what has happened is people are now realizing this. So it's like, yeah, of course there's bias because our system has been biased for like 200 years. And therefore, when you're designing a new system, guess what? You're going to put in someone's interpretation of what's fair. And therefore, you're now going to be introducing another type of bias. Um, and so there is no easy fix. Yeah. Um, as long as humans are the ones creating the artificial intelligence, programming the robots, are we ever going to have bias-free robots, and would that be a good thing anyway if we did? Um, So I don't think we will have bias-free robots um, because not all bias is bad. And so, um, but there is bad bias, right? Um, Some bias is the fact that, um, you know, I will, uh, I take care when I'm around older adults and kids, right? I'm just a little bit more careful. I'm a little more cordial. I'm a little nicer. It's a bias, maybe because I think they need more help. I don't know. But there's a bias there. Um, I think it's good, right? Because uh, I hope when I'm older, like, and I'm, like, taking my groceries out, that some nice person comes and takes this heavy, heavy basket of stuff and puts it in my car. I would really want that. Or some nice grocery robot. Yes, yes, right? They see me and they help me, right? I want that kind of bias. Okay, so maybe some good bias is in order. But how do we figure out what's the good stuff and what's the bad stuff? And who's keeping track? We'll talk more about that when we come back. Stay with us.
we're back. And by now, we've well established that gender bias and all kinds of bias, really, have noodled their way through data into our artificial intelligence, which is all around us every day. So how do we fix this? Well, Ayana has some ideas about how we could use technology to police itself. If I'm creating a program and I'm coding it up, right, and I hit compile, my compiler gives me errors and warnings, right? And errors, my I can't even create a, it can't execute, right, if it has errors. So you have to fix those. And warnings, um, depending on the level of corporations, your big corporations, you actually have to go through each warning and decide whether you're going to address it or whether you're not, or is this going to be, you know, verge two or verge three, right? This is a requirement as part of you getting software out. Um, you could do the same thing with like a bias check engine, right? So imagine as when you hit compile, you integrate these bias checks in terms of your warnings, you know, or maybe even errors. Just make it so like if you're like a socially responsible company, you make it as an error. So it's like it doesn't compile if it has this bias. I might have bias about something in Utah, right? I have no clue. And so, you know, but if my code was like, it does not compile because you have not included a representation from da-da-da. I'm like, man, all right, let me go find a representation. <laughs> Add it in. Compile, compile. Yes! <laughs> I mean, that's what we do, right? So that would be an awesome tool. I think that can be a tool that can be created, right? That's a tool that can be created. Um, I mean, someone has to fund it. It's going to take a lot of... But that is a tool that a corporation could create. What is the roboticist or the engineer's responsibility once they have created the technology, whether it is like literally a an algorithm or it is a robot or or whatever, what is their responsibility then once it is unleashed on the world? Do they have a responsibility to stick around and be like, how's it working? Is it racist? Yeah, so this is interesting. Roboticists and AI folks, I mean, this is really almost the first time in history where engineers and computer science are asked to be responsible. It's weird because, you know, this is not part of your training. You're taught to be brilliant, right? And design really cool things that work. Um, you're not necessarily taught to think about what is going, what the uses are after it leaves your mind. This is the first time that I know in history that society is asking roboticists and AI folks, so why are you creating this stuff if it's going to do this stuff? Um, and so it actually puts us in a challenge. Ayana says she does think that engineers have a responsibility to consider the biases in the tech they create. But she also thinks they need help to do that. Right now, engineering and computer science programs don't have a course that helps you identify bias. You know, if a billion people in the world are using your software, you kind of have a responsibility to society to, like, make sure that it has at least minimum bias. Or if it does have bias, you know, be upfront about it. You're like, say oh, we're serving this to a billion users, but guess what? We have only trained it on, you know, people in Pasadena, just so you know, right? At least be upfront then. And then I can make a decision like, hmm, do I want to trust this or do I really care? Okay, so clearly it would help if we trained engineers to think a little more carefully about how they might be introducing bias into AI. And consumers like us don't have to blindly trust robots if they're driving us off a cliff either, <laughs> metaphorically or literally. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, here's what Heather Roth said when I asked who she thinks is responsible for leading the robo-gender reboot revolution. 
Everybody. <laughs> everybody? <laughs> it's everybody's responsibility. Frankly, it really is. I mean, like, because we can lay the blame, you know, at the designer's feet. They do have a heavy obligation and burden that they themselves must carry. But they're not alone. Their employers carry a bunch, you know. Who, what are the values of the companies that these guys work for? And I'll say guys, because most of them are guys. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the values of the company and the culture of the company perpetuates a certain type of behavior, if the company infantilizes all of its employees by giving them nap pods and, and foosball tables and game rooms and free food and they can come in and not wear shoes to work, well, you know what? that's going to perpetuate a certain type of lifestyle for a certain type of person. If the building doesn't have lactation rooms and isn't parent-friendly, you know, I mean, there's different types of cultures that become perpetuated in the big tech companies. And I would say, so the companies are guilty, and I would say the academic institutions are guilty because those guys come from somewhere. Academic labs are cutthroat. Right? They're, the lab itself is a power hierarchy with the professor sitting on top. Both Heather and Ayana said that addressing that whole only woman in the room situation would go a long way to helping creators come up with more truly innovative technology. But even that isn't a simple fix. This is another thing that I get really irritated about all the time. You know, it's like, we have a pipeline problem in STEM. Fuck your pipeline, okay? It is not just add more women and mix. It is because it's a gender problem. It's not a sex problem. It is about masculinity and femininity and the power, power hierarchies that exist in that. And so you can add more women to the DOD. You can add more women to an academic lab. But unless they start acting the way that the lab or the culture or the organization values, they won't succeed. They'll leave. It, I, this is not a women problem. This is an everybody problem. And so I would say that, you know, that's why I say that we're all complicit to some extent. And until, until that kind of system changes, we can appropriate guilt and, and we can say that there's a technological fix, but there's, there needs to be a social fix. A social fix because inherently this is a social problem. Heather says whether you work in computer science or have no idea of what artificial intelligence really is, like, we're probably still using and trusting this technology. So we have an interest and maybe even a duty in pushing for the tech that reflects the world that we want to live in. Technology is what we make it. And if we think that gender is a spectrum and is diverse and has so many different flavors and shades, you know then our technology can too. And so we are only limited by our cognitive constructs. So in other words, Caroline, we cannot expect technology to innovate us out of a sexist world. These conversations like we are having today are a great place to start, honestly. You know, that awareness of bias seems to be another valuable tool, kind of like media literacy, you know, being critical of what we read and how that might be biased. We can't assume all of our tech just showed up to lead us to some genderless paradise. And we're hearing about robots in the news more than ever. Like this gender aspect is coming up and people are kind of starting to poke around and ask those questions of like, why are all of these digital assistants 
feminine voiced, but it's so much more than that. It's an issue that extends to the battlefield, to the boardroom, like to all of the places in our lives, because this technology is is really meant to take over. It's being built to take over. But as consumers, I think a big thing that I learned is that we have a lot of power in this as well. So tell us, how are you thinking about gender in tech? Anybody out there developing a genderless personal assistant? Email us your thoughts and links to your robot that you're making at hello at unladylike.co or get us on social at unladylike media. Find out more about Heather, Ayana, and a video of Minnie Darwin doing push-ups at unladylike.co. And while you're there, pre-order our book, why don't you? This goes a long way, and at the link on our site, you can even order through your own local brick-and-mortar feminist bookstore. So what are you waiting for? A robot's not going to do that for you. No, unless you tell it to. Like the robot we asked to do our credits? Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen and Sarah Tudzin. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Rodlett. Special thanks to Rachel London. And we are your non-robot hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. And next week, Phyllis Schlafly, RBG, CNC, and a feminist filmmaker walk into a podcast studio. And all I want to scream as loud as I can is, you don't have equal rights. And y'all, we're going on a mission to make Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ultimate constitutional dream come true. Please don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. I'm Caroline, and no, Alexa has not joined. I'm having trouble understanding right now. Stitcher. <laughs> <laughs>